0: You're now listening to the Something Good Podcast Network. Please press any key to continue.
1: A kiss, as defined by Dan Webster, is something pleasing, a caress, a gentle touch. But there's another kiss that isn't in Webster's. Hey, world!
0: We're kids!
1: Some critics say they don't make music, they just make noise. Yeah,
2: KISS sucks! KISS employs the extreme in the theatrics on stage, utilizing fire and smoke and bizarre costumes and the ever-consistent, constant concealment of their true
1: identities. Speaking of which, KISS is going to have its own comic book soon. Take KISS with you. It's fun. Show your friends and be the first, now. Oh my God, no time to turn.
2: Welcome once again to No Time to Turn, a KISS nerd podcast. Nerds! Not
1: an expert, just nerds.
2: Just nerds. We are not experts, we're just a bunch of random schmoes that like to sit around and talk about everybody's favorite group, KISS. That they love to hate. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we are tracking the history of KISS album by album, year by year, and uh, now we are... uh, Moving into the rock and roll over era.
1: That's correct. We
2: just uh, we finished uh, Destroyer, and I think as we were winding down Destroyer, the you know these things move or move so fast you forget about it because we have the hindsight of you know at this point mm-hmm. I guess for this era you know forty five years, and you forget that this stuff is just coming at a rapid clip. They're pulling uh, pulling stuff out every. Six or eight months. So in the middle of this Destroyer uh, tour, they've changed or they've added, I should say, uh, business management with mm-hmm. Carl Glickman, who is somehow partnered with Howard Marks, who about runs advertising. They've brought along um, a, a guy named Chris Lent as the liaison and tour accountant, and
1: he'll be a pivotal figure mm-hmm. for the next, well, basically the next 10 years. Um, I'm reading uh, Peter Chris's book right now, and he's getting into uh, the personalities of like Chris Lint and Howard uh, and all those guys too. Yeah, that's been a fun read right now. Um,
2: but uh, the um, the album Destroyer initially has not done what they had hoped. Uh, they really had, I guess, um, pretty high expectations, great expectations, if you will, oh, oh,
0: oh, 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 oh.
2: for that and it doesn't really uh it doesn't connect like they were hoping that it would and then an interesting thing happens we discussed this i believe in the last episode the uh the um flipping of of the a side uh, into beth of mm-hmm. beth to the a side and suddenly they have a surprise hit on their hands
1: their household name winning uh awards and things like that well, and we'll people's get, choice yeah
2: yeah we'll get to that and then um for Halloween, that they appear on the Pauline Halloween
3: special. Mm-hmm. I still love that special, or at least they're bit. I love that.
2: It was, and that was really a major, I think, introduction for a lot of people, particularly of a certain age group, because it's certainly, this is the, I think, this is, you could, if you wanted to pinpoint a certain event where their their appeal starts to, as they say, widen. Yes. And by widening, that means uh, it gets to a lower age group. Yeah. Yeah. It starts to shift to a much younger audience. And uh, this was the moment probably that, it did it.
1: Peter yeah. says that even in his book
3: and, you know, for better or worse, it's exactly what happens. It's yeah, like, in- even kind of like uh, working off that, like in the recent history thing, he was calling uh, his all cutesy things. We were starting to do cutesy things. Well,
2: you know, I mean, their image played towards that so much. They mm-hmm. were very much, you know, whether Peter was aware of it or not, uh, you know, obviously Gene was bringing a lot of comic book influence into what he did. Um, Apparently, I've dug up a little piece of information I was not previously aware of. Um, Prior to agreeing to do the Paul Lynn special, they were offered uh, an appearance on a Mary Tyler Moore TV special. Interesting. And I don't know the details on that, but from what I read, Bill Coyne said that um, part of the reason why they turned it down was they felt that the imagery that they were being asked to present was too dark, which is kind of odd. And that they wanted them to use someone else's material. They didn't want them to sing Kiss songs.
3: Oh, yeah. That would have been the immediate no from me.
2: And I'm like, I don't, what, what, who? and I can't, um, for, uh, for the likes of me, try to figure out, like, what were they going to do? I'm sing Alice Cooper songs? Why? I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> right. But obviously, they turned it down. And I think, uh, you know, it didn't hurt them at all because they wound up with this Paul Lynn thing. Um,
1: do you remember the, uh, all the guests that were on that particular show? On the Paul N. show. Yeah.
2: Yeah, they had um, Margaret Hamilton, who was the original Wicked Witch of the West from, yep. from Wizard of Oz. And then they had... Um, see, Betty White was on there, I think. Was, was Betty White on it? Ross Kelly, who had been uh, having some success as Pinky Tuscadero on the TV show Happy Days. Mm-hmm, yeah, I
3: remember that part. And
2: Pinky's little sister was played by... Susie Quattro. Yep, as...
1: Leather Tuscadero.
3: Leather Tuscadero. <laughs>
2: All right, ding, ding, ding. Good job, Captain. Look at the big brain on Captain.
1: Good job, buddy. My mom loved Happy Days. (laughs) Then find out he's just looking at it right here on his computer. No, No, that's Um, still trap memory right there. Was
2: it it Billy Barty that did Witchy Poo?
1: Uh, good question. Uh,
2: I can't recall.
1: I think uh, Tim Conway was on the episode, too.
2: But it did a lot for him, and it might have been you know i you could make a an argument, I guess that this would have been the beginning of the end the kiss as a as a as a you know it's also the beginning of the beginning in in a very real way, but kiss is that sort of kind of I don't to like to use the word underground, but they were certainly very much. Uh, a, you know a not even a niche thing but their audience they had built their audience on the road they had not had a hit record including destroyer was not a hit record i don't think destroyer even made the top 100 on its on its initial release now eventually it would climb back in on the strength of yeah. of beth by that fall but you know upon release in march the previous spring it really just didn't do that
3: well. It kind of floundered. And now, I wonder if part of that was due to like them kind of having a bit of a different sound when compared absolutely. to the other absolutely I brand. think
2: a lot of people that were you know, KISS fans at that point were pretty disappointed with it. I mean, it was... Um, it was very left field, I think, at the time. Of course, you know we're looking again with
3: hindsight, and they've done other things and mm-hmm. and experiment with other ideas. But and that is interesting slash cool that like in hindsight we can look at it and go like, well, it may not be my favorite Kiss album, but it still sounds like a definitive Kiss album. You hear it and you're just like, oh yeah, that's pure Kiss. But how the fan base at the time was like, this is not Kiss, that's not pure Kiss and at all, with all this extra shit on it.
2: It's become one of probably their, uh, you know. Th-
1: Definitive records. The I mean, Detroit Rock City by itself is one of the definitive Kiss tunes.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, um, but but they're second guessing themselves here. They're coming out of this and they're trying to figure out. Okay, this you know. And, and Bob Ezrin thought this was going to begin be the beginning of a you know a long fruitful relationship, much like he had with Alice Cooper. Uh, Surprise, surprise. (laughs) That did not happen.
1: I think the first person they approached uh, coming out of it was Jack Richardson. No, it was uh, Jack Douglas. Jack Douglas. Yeah, and he did the uh, Aerosmith and Cheap Trick Records. Yeah, I
2: meant to say Jack Douglas.
1: Okay. And uh, one thing I read that was kind of funny was that... uh, uh, Jack was friends with Bob
2: yes and, yes and Bob had
1: no idea that they talked to Jack
2: Yeah and they, they found out through back channels and it was mm-hmm. like yeah
3: and they, uh, you know that that was a, a blunder yeah and, he, and even both Paul and Gene have admitted since then being like yeah we, that was the wrong way to go about that yeah, <laughs> they,
2: they didn't do it right but uh, they uh, ended up uh, zeroing in on Eddie Kramer. Who, yeah. who, of course, they had been quite successful with with the Alive album. He produced or engineered... The first demos. Yeah, he produced the first demos and he engineered uh, a Alive. lot of the stuff that they were being, I guess, probably influenced or at least were trying to measure up to, which, of course, is like Led Zeppelin, The Who, what what have you, Jimi Hendrix. And didn't
3: Ezrin also... I mean, not Ezrin. Um, didn't he also come back to do Aces record?
2: That would be later, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think
3: I've always preferred Eddie Kramer's producing style. Anytime it's an Eddie Kramer-produced Kiss record, I really like the guitar tones. I really like just the overall vibe that he captures from well, Kiss. Well, I certainly
2: think I think they come out with something really good on this record. But it's interesting because uh, this whole cycle from, from this point to Love Gun is almost sort of overlooked and kind of forgotten. Chapter and Kiss... But there's a lot of really important stuff that happens in this that that needs to be noted. But let's let's kind of start where, again, they come off the the road from Destroyer and they're uh, getting ready to go record. They've chosen Eddie Kramer. Mm -hmm. This they've retained Corky Stasiak from who was the engineer for Destroyer. He makes an interesting comment. That he was surprised that they changed from Ezrin to Kramer, and he makes this is the the quote I found and I thought was very telling. He said they were better than they thought they were. Hmm. And I thought that's a really interesting thing to say. They were better than they thought they were. Yeah. Which is that's not that's like that's not. They're better than their audience thought they were. That's not they're better than what you thought they were. Or what I they were better than what they thought they were. He's this is a you know that's this, a unique producer
3: was, or uh, engineer comment.
2: And 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 he's not paid to say that. He's saying this in hindsight. So he's kind of acknowledging what a lot you know that uh I don't know how you would say this. He's uh, acknowledging that. um they they were a lot stronger than their critics even gave them credit for mm. and
3: maybe uh, just kind of putting a little bit more faith of themselves and kind of boosting up the songwriting probably could have shown more talent kind of comments well they
2: had the ability to do more and they, that came apparent under uh Ezra's direction yeah and here they're not going to have that yeah, they're with- going to have a a producer who's who's going to be less interested in Uh, arrangements arrangements and stuff now again now the the other thing to also consider is that Ezrin uh winds up with a lot of songwriting credits yeah which means a lot of publishing royalties
3: oh yeah
2: yeah. that's not necessarily something they're probably very interested in sharing but uh then again you know they call that points too. it would make that it would it would have made more sense had the record been a blockbuster You know, because, uh, you know, to have given him, you know, a percentage of, you know, 10 million records as opposed to a percentage of a million records, which Mm -hmm. the album eventually did sell a million records, but...
0: It, was, took bit it, to get it took
2: there. a it took a long time to get there. Yeah. So uh, people, I think, forget that Destroyer did not come charging out of the gate, going here is Kiss, and everyone, oh, finally, here we are. Yeah, no, they, and they kind of kind of crept over the finish line,
0: mm-hmm.
2: mere weeks before the release of Rock and Roll Over. Beth is only just beginning to chart in that time frame.
3: Um, yeah, because the uh, correct me if I'm wrong. The Destroyer tour got cut early, was it? Cause like the stage show was pretty crazy. Or they kept having to like take out things from the live show because it was failing it wasn't or what cut more.
2: early. They just, uh, I think it just became kind of a, uh, it was a big stage. It, right. It was the it was their biggest production yet. But we'll get to that here in a minute because okay. that plays into some of what happens here. Because they're going to continue to use this stage in the rock and roll over cycle. They're using the same costumes. Same staging, but before we get there, let's talk about the album itself because they've recorded this in the very early fall of '76. I've got the dates September 30th through October 16th. Yeah,
1: Uh, that's according to Corky Stazak's notes, and um, over at uh, the. How do you say that? The Nanuet Star Theater?
2: Yeah, I think it's Nanuet, New York, which is not... It's its about 30 <laughs>
1: minutes, I think,
2: away from New York City. So mm-hmm. it would have been an easy drive from from any point wherever they might be residing at that point, which I don't know. But.
1: And again, they're with uh, Eddie Kramer, who knows how to work in a live setting like that. It's like uh, we talk about Bob Ezrin being a uh, an arrangement. Uh, songwriter, producer, where uh, Eddie Kramer, would you say he's like more of an engineer slash producer kind of? He's more of a performance guy. Performance, yeah, probably yeah. Well, that too.
2: Well, I think also it's just getting the good sounds and stuff. Ace mm-hmm. felt a lot more comfortable with them because they seem to have a good chemistry and work together to, you know, well, let's, let's try this amp. Let's try yeah. that. Let's, you know, let's play this guitar through that amp and let's play that guitar through, you know, that kind of stuff. The stuff I would eat up. Yeah, uh-huh. It's stuff that people don't generally think about because you. You just immediately assume that it's exactly as you see live it's you know Ace playing a Les Paul through a Marshall no it's, no, not it's probably like that. Ace you know and in some cases he might be playing a Telecaster through a you know a Super Twin
3: yeah, yeah. exactly
1: so um, that first Led Zeppelin was made on a Super o and a Telecaster and a Fuzz yeah <laughs> and
2: so what's interesting they've moved the drums again in this they did this with Destroyer we talked about this they would set up the drums in different parts of the studio to achieve different things. I don't understand this concept very well because it seems like that would be inconsistent, but, uh, apparently they, they, uh, the, the more, the more famous or the more common story is they talk about setting up the drums in the bathrooms and using a video link. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, is
1: unusual, mm-hmm. but, um, that's mentioned a lot in Peter's book too. See, that but, one just
3: seems so hard to believe. I heard the one where they put them like, in an empty hall to try to get that really big bottom well, sound. Well, uh, what
2: they did is, uh, uh, apparently this theater was a theater in the rounds, which had meant it had 360 seating and the stage was in the center. And um, from what I've read, the way I understand it is uh, most of the guitar parts are recorded with the amplifiers pointed outward into the hallways, into the, like I guess, the entrance hallways to the theater and mic'd probably at different intervals
3: that's cool actually
2: it get to get you know and this works for me i think it makes sense to me because this i've always thought this album had a really great ambient sound mm-hmm. which i think in my personal opinion it's their best sounding record i'd agree with you on that and, and there's uh because there's there is a murkiness to destroyer and i don't know quite how to define that or how to state that in a way that it's, probably makes sense other than to say it's kind of
3: fuzzy it, well, it's like funny. like almost like it like warm coat fuzzy kind of thing it doesn't have a certain bite to it everything just kind of has a
2: yeah it's kind it. of it's it, it's you know it's very atmospheric and i think it works for that album it's not a criticism
3: no not
2: at all i don't mean murky as
3: in muddy mm-hmm. that, but that's it, hotter than hell <laughs> yeah
0: but,
2: but this you know but this album i think has a very in-your-face direct sound. It's very up front. It's very forward. The guitars sound more powerful than they have on any of their previous albums, save for Alive. Yep. They sound like more close. It sounds closer to this guitar sound of
1: of, of the live album of Alive than it does any other album. there's hardly any uh, bells and whistles on this album, really.
2: Well, I mean,
1: at least that's readily
2: apparent. It's very, yeah, you know, very, very... You know, down to the bone. Mm -hmm. They also set up the drums at on the center stage. There's a story that Corky Stasiak relates in in one of the books where they've spent two days setting up and miking the drums, getting a very you know because they wanted a bigger, thunderous sound, using the whole ambient tone of the 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 theater. And then Sean Delaney shows up with a skateboard. Yeah. <laughs> I remember this now, <laughs> and and somewhere someone thinks it would be a good idea to see if you can skate down the aisles, and in the process he ends up skating straight into this drum kit that they've spent days setting up, and it's like an hour away from everyone set, showing up to record. Oh,
1: no. If you're, Eddie, K- if you're it, Eddie Kramer, do you just like throw your hands up, and you're just like,
2: well, you no, know, see, no, he's not there. It's just. Sean. Sean Delaney and Corky Stasiac just fucking around <laughs> has broken his fingers. So, with one hand, they're sitting around furiously trying to reset everything. Oh my God. <laughs> and then everyone shows up and they're just like. Whoosh, whoosh. <laughs> <laughs> and and they 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 just do some you know i guess you know some mic checks or whatever else and quirky says paul stanley turns and looks at him and goes you know i think this sounds better even today than it did yesterday <laughs> And he swears he never told anyone that story, and and it's the only time—the first time it ever got relayed—was in that book. Wow, it's a funny story. I do know? love
3: that, especially because I've also been in those shoes of like like being in the studio and like people are moving a little bit too fast in the tracking room, and I'm like, you need to watch these microphones. If we touch one of these, we're probably going to have to redo everything.
2: <laughs> so, do y'all want to? y'all want to go through this album? Uh, uh, we can go song by song.
3: Uh, yeah, sure. Let's go ahead and do that
2: because. Um, it's a lot to chew on with these songs. There's some there's some
3: stone classics on this. Absolutely. And uh, your favorite bit of trivia. Actually, I will always remember, you were always, before I really dug into the internet, you were the treasure trove of like the fun Kiss trivia. And do you remember the, you told me about this record that a lot more people have brought up, but might as well, too, while we're here. The fact that everything has a fade out.
2: Oh yeah, there's no yeah. there's no hard endings. There's people that I've argued with this about. It's like, oh, the songs fade out, or all the songs are mostly just chorus repeated, and I'm like, and your problem is, I yeah. don't I don't understand this complaint, like.
1: I understand if it's a fucking uh, oh, what's the guy's name that writes all the fucking uh, Bon Jovi songs in the 80s and the Alice Cooper shit. Oh, um, uh, the Desmond Child choruses that repeat like well, you know eight times or whatever. They haven't they haven't got It the, isn't that bad. They not yet. haven't
2: they haven't met Desmond Child at this point that I'm aware of, but yeah, you know, I can I mean, I guess you could say it's a valid complaint, but I it doesn't bother me. And I think part of this is because I, there's there is the timeline issue that this mm. is the first kiss album that i ever got i didn't get it my brother got it but by you know by default it was actually we had we might have had hotter than hell before that but you know this is a dim memory but yeah you know this one to definitely crabs you harder and in, in the interest of full disclosure this is my personal favorite kiss album okay so I'd say I, you know, probably I have my top a, five. I have a very strong emotional connection to this because it's just, and I don't think it's my favorite because it's my first. Because I've gone through different phases where certain ones are my favorite, quote mm, unquote. Yeah. But this one is consistently. I, I, you know, I, I came to realize, you know, if you had to pick one, this would be the one for me. Yeah, I think this son- would be my yeah. Desert Island Kiss
1: disc. Sonically, for me, I think this hits everything that it needs songwriting too there's there's a lot of great fucking songs on here too there's a lot more jams than you know songs i guess too but you know it's also that the point where everybody's kind of splintering in their own little camps as far as songwriting too mm-hmm. well
2: they never really wrote together per se there's a very small like it's i think less than five songs that are credited to simmons and stanley together
3: yeah a lot uh, of them are just like either simmons with someone else stanley yeah, with someone else stanley with to, delaney yeah yeah
2: Sean Delaney again. He he he's got his presence on this record. There's a big thumbprint there that Mm -hmm. isn't acknowledged, not not as strongly as it should be. Let's start. Let's go uh, song by song here.
1: Opens with "I Want You," starting with a twelve-string acoustic,
2: which is you know I think you know it's kind of throws a little bit of a swerve right out of the front,
3: Mm -hmm. but. um, immediately flips the script on you.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it, you know, but you can almost feel it coming, but, uh, it has almost that kind of, uh, I don't know. It feels kind of very, very seventies kind of AM kind of a sound. And that just, especially that, with that. With intro. The acu- yeah. That's what I mean. That intro part just has, you know, kind of is like, okay, where are we going here? Cause it's almost like they're acknowledging that they just made this album that a lot of people didn't understand. And they're kind of like they're kind of like poking we're going, fun at it. Yeah, we're going to go there again. No, we're not.
1: <laughs> I, my, I can my, totally see that. Here's my yacht rock intro,
3: then Marshall guitars. <laughs> and I'll say uh, this is one of the few Kiss songs that doesn't get better or worse when played live. It's a great song when they play it live. Like the Alive Two version, I love that. Now, sure, that is mostly studio, but we've also seen like the uh, uh, Tokyo Dome or the Japan uh, Rock and Roll Over show. Yeah. And they play I Want You on that one and that's still just like ah oh, so good. I love it's both so the good. guitar solos that are on it too. Paul's part's really good. Oh, and coming from a guitarist standpoint, I am just a sucker for any of those da 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 just those little quick little walks Ace well, will you do know, or the Paul things, will do. That's one. I
2: think I think that's one of the things they do well. They're not they're not super flash players and that's I think and nor should they be. But one thing that strikes me about this song the recorded version, not so much the live version, is it's it's very funky. Oh, yeah. Especially oh, yeah. on the bass.
1: Yeah. And that little dropout that you're talking about, that dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Uh-huh.
2: We've talked about this on previous episodes, how there always seems to be this kind of unacknowledged but very pervasive R&B influence on a lot of what they do, particularly Paul's stuff.
3: Mm-hmm. And it's odd with Paul because Peter was the jazz R&B guy. Well, but you know, Paul's a great
2: I mean, he's a great stylist. I'll I'll, yeah. I'll say that as a as a as as the best as I can, he, rather than a great copier. <laughs> but he's really good at copying stuff. He's a great stylist, you yeah. know. Yeah. And and I think it gets overlooked because it's muscled up so heavily and they hit so hard with it that, you know, you almost miss it. But that funk feel is very much there, and oh, yeah. I think this—I think there's a lot of that on this album that just it, it you know. But it's layered under the sheen of heavy guitar, mm-hmm. and that kind of gives it, um, you know, its own uniqueness. You mentioned the there's the dual lead on this. A lot of people, I think, aren't aware that mm-hmm. it's a split lead. The mm-hmm. first part is Paul, Paul and leads over to Ace, and then it flips to Ace. And they'll do this again on "I
3: Stole Your Love." "I Stole Your Love," but that's getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, Yeah. just a little Um, preview. That's my emotionally favorite Kiss album. Those are both
1: like super melodic. The way they just kind of like you know lead into each other too. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, Yeah. absolutely.
2: And 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 it's it's just done so so well that um you know you can almost
3: miss it. Um, But Paul and Ace do have pretty good distinct guitar tones and for the longest time I was always like the ace fan of like you know loving his tone uh, using maybe like that song as a reference point I really like Paul's fuzz guitar like it's just it just hits just right I love it well, True, on man. this
2: I'm like again I think they've really caught the guitar sound on this album the way that none of the albums have previous um and then of course that towards you know the 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 end of the song where it reverts back to the acoustic part but when it launches back in they have the uh the uh, flange the flange across it oh you know? yeah mm-hmm. that's man and then, and then just the doing screaming
3: those little... guitar solos at the end uh-huh. and everything else yeah. it's, it's like the guitars are matching Paul's I ah, want yeah yeah, oh. yeah. yeah. It, excellent songwriting excellent song
2: very very uh, killer song
1: it's one of my uh, I was gonna say it's my, I don't know if it's my favorite opener but it's definitely up there in the top uh, five for sure for it, KISS records
2: it really, it works it's, it's, it's really very strong very powerful then it goes into uh the
1: song Take Me. Mm-hmm. This is a It's kinda of like a Zeppelin riff. Dun, 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 yeah, dun, dun, you know, dun, dun, I mean dun,
2: there's there's I guess there's some uh Sean Delaney, I think, at one point claimed to have written this front to back. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you know, he said she said whatever.
3: Right. Yeah.
2: That wouldn't surprise me if he had put the lion's share of the work into this.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, Especially with the lyric content. Oh, yeah. Well, I say that only because, you know, again, it has kind of a funk feel.
3: And you know what uh-huh. I think also adds to that? And this another reason I think Sean had a pretty heavy hand in it. it. Correct me if I'm wrong. Around this time is when Casablanca was also doing a lot of the disco stuff and kind of like Donna uh, Donna Summer and things mm-hmm. like that, correct? This song has double hi-hat. Yeah, Peter's. yeah. And it almost kind of mimics like a tambourine kind of sound. Right. And so that even leads me to believe that with Sean being so heavy into the disco scene. Yeah, but did
2: he introduce that? I mean, that would have been more of a production idea. I'm not sure that. Yeah, you're right. You know. I could have been. Peter's inventiveness, mm. but, I, but I'm, I'd rather, I'm a I'd rather give I'd rather give credit to Peter for the inventiveness because he never gets any credit for his inventiveness, and there's some
3: cool stuff going on there. Oh yeah, well then oh, right here on No Time to Turn, Peter did yeah. that. No, yeah. I am just a big sucker for that double a uh, hi hat thing. Yeah. i just I love that. I sound. do too.
2: I, I love this whole song. You know, I just think it's a killer riff. Um
3: the live when Gene does it, take me! Yeah, well,
1: no, or that, or like, a, who does like the high parts on that where it's like, take me! That's what it oh, sounds yeah. like live. <laughs> <laughs>
2: But that's a that's a, a really great song. The lyrics are kind of
1: dopey, but you know what's the what's the first line? Grab your hand on my rocket. Uh, put your hand in my, my pocket, pocket. Grab onto my rocket. rocket. Yeah, <laughs> feels so good to see you, Lucille. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Lucille, babe, I gotta that's know. That's got you to be. Go? That has got to be a Sean Delaney lyric. I know. I don't see Paul like, okay, who's, what's her name going to be? Lucille. <laughs> you picked the fine time to leave me, Lucille. Anyway. <laughs> but, uh, I really like the lead on this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It kind of has, if you, towards the end, it kind of has this sort of, uh, Almost like kind of pauses in it, you know.
3: Yeah, Peter does a little pause, and Gene boom, boom on it, the bass. It, there's mm-hmm. there's
2: a lot there's a lot of interesting little kind of arrangement, mm-hmm. all that flourishes
3: fun- in there that are that are really cool. All that funk you were talking about. Yeah, mm-hmm. Gene is great on kind of implementing those little funk bass lines too, yeah. and those little stops that Peter does too. Oh yeah,
2: um, Then of course it goes right into probably the album's most well known track, calling yeah. Doctor Love.
3: Uh, This song still messes with me a little bit from a production aspect, because when the drums kick in, as soon as they go back to... What's the opening chord? A? It's like an E. It's like E. Okay. When they go go back to that opening chord, after the drums... There. Mm -hmm. On that hit, there's a tape wobble where they clearly punched Peter back in. And it's very odd. It messes with me every time.
0: Well...
2: I'm not, I don't know that I've noticed that. I, I noticed there's, there seems to be a wobble. A lot of people seem to think it's out of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're doing the same thing again while they're recording this with Peter. Uh, they started it with Bob Ezrin, and it continued with Eddie Kramer, where mm-hmm. Eddie Kramer stood with a box and— With a microphone in it. And tapped the time. Mm-hmm.
3: Because there was metronome.
2: yeah, it, that was that was their metronome, and but Peter plays from the heart, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, it, the heart needs to play in time. It, <laughs> uh, yeah, but it still fits. I mean, would you, you know, if we listen to it any other way, I mean, um, it's just other guys playing it, the other guys playing it, coming in. It's it doesn't have that same feel. Yeah, um, and, I get it. You know. Uh, what I, I love think the song, is, though. I, I I've always thought this was the silliest song. I don't know why. Is. Even when I was a kid. But you know, there's something about that. It sounds again. That's a very '70s thing. You know, like some I can see some like you know, some dude with a polyester you know suit with the big butterfly collar yeah. with the, opened up to his chest I'm with Dr. a gold chain. going. call me Doctor Love. Baby. It's just it's just corny, but. <laughs> When you know, and we know, of course. Now you got the the demos that are out there. This this began life as a song called "Bad Bad Lovin', yeah, which was as equally as bad bad as this. But but <laughs> but you know, it's cool. It doesn't matter. You know, yeah. it's like somehow the way he uh, the delivery of it. I mean, some of the the way he's delivering the 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 vocal. You mm-hmm. know. Uh,
3: in the yeah, you let me Yeah, in. but he's saying something you he let do me all. To, Duo. Yeah, ju- yeah. what is
2: it? What the hell is that? You yeah, know. I know. I, he, we he, never he, understood that.
3: Even when we were kids, we were like, what's he even saying there? You know what? I wonder if that's like a geneism because he kind of sounds like that when he says double roll uh, in, in the movie. I, I don't I don't know. I don't know. Or the, but uh,
2: what I think is cool in the in in is when you get to the solo and he starts going up on the high part of the, of the neck, you Mm -hmm. know,
1: it's mostly bends the whole time. He's doing
2: these high bends. They, if you listen, they've, they ramp up the, uh, the reverb on that. Uh So it it sounds like, it sounds like it's going way up in the sky, you know? And then it, but then when he drops back down, the reverb drops back down, you know? And it's like, an awesome little trick. It's little, it's little things like that that just make it, you know,
1: that's such an Eddie Kramer move too. Yeah.
2: And it's, it's, I don't know. And, I he, just,
1: and he name drops the band's fucking name in the song, like subtly. Oh like, yeah. It's like the first step of the cure it, is a kiss, a kiss. <laughs> but, cherry and then,
2: flavor. And then, the, <laughs> <laughs> <that too. laughs> and then when it comes back out of the solo into the chorus,
1: mm-hmm.
2: Peter just is driving on a, <laughs> on a crash. Crash,
0: mm. crash,
1: uh-huh. crash, 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 You don't hear that a lot in songs anymore these days. And, and you
3: know, it just gives the song a big drive, and then, of course, you know, it fades out. Fades out. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, something I was thinking about literally just now, it popped in my head, I wonder if the Calling Doctor Love was a leftover from Da. Hey, rock and roll. Oh, well, who knows? Because you know, that demo, they they pulled that uh, kind of like falsetto kind of like background thing, and it immediately made me think of calling Doctor Love. It's <laughs> like I want to keep that falsetto on something, guys.
1: Well,
2: well, well, no, I mean that's that's sort of a genism, too. You'll mm. see, you see that in other songs that he does, particularly later. Oh, see on. you in your
3: dreams too. Um, ladies' room. Uh, I like three. it live. I don't way? think studio it works. I'm,
2: I'm losing I'm losing my my brain here. What what, what did that start life as? It was um, there's a demo. Oh, geez, I don't
3: know. I don't think I ever ran across that demo. I, I don't know either. I did. either. didn't there fully is. connect it or pay attention.
1: Um, it kind of plods a little bit on the uh, studio version though. Like like it sounds I, good live. I've but.
2: always liked it. I, I I you know it it's it's almost like it's a little bit. You know, it has a Chuck Berry feel to me.
1: Mm-hmm. So you know, and,
2: and I can hear that. Now. You know, I think some of the lyrics are pretty cool. You're just a jewel in the rough. Yeah, you want to like show a, me. Your you want to show
3: me your stuff <laughs> for my money. You can't be too Again. soon. Again, I'll meet you Again. in the ladies' room. <laughs> La- I mean, you
2: know, we used to think. You know, when you're a little kid and you're hearing that stuff, you're just like,
0: ooh, <laughs> what?
2: You know, and then you're like, what are they going to do in there? I, like, oh, <laughs> you know, talk about Jesus. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> You know the danger element.
2: but the cowbell. Yeah, you know, that's a weird. That's a weird break in the in the in the, in the every course. It's, it's a little. It's a little odd. Yeah, because there's
1: no tambourines or shakers or anything like that. You mm-hmm. got to break it up with something.
3: I always like the cowbell though, especially on Kiss songs yeah I, I definitely like I, I think it's a good and well written song especially the chorus i like the chorus it's catchy as hell and, but uh, i like the alive version i just think it's got that it's a little faster and it's kind of get a little bit more excitement to it and they don't do the uh i'm not a fan of the way they end it when peter goes into the halftime the, doo-doo-dah, 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 the to me it just loses all bit of like a little bit of excitement it, that it actually weird. had
1: yeah and gene plays rhythm guitar on this track too it's the only uh like the other weird album note that I have for this entire record is that okay. Gene plays rhythm guitar on this one song and that's it.
2: <laughs> well, I like Ace's lead on it's very simple. Yeah, it's but it's very <laughs> effective. <laughs> I mean, it's it's very melodic. A good um, Ace
3: solo is one you can sing back, like I just did. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Oh well, I mean, and that's pretty much. All Ace solos, yeah. That's you know that's something that Especially he never these really first, like gets, five or six
3: records. You know, yeah. Ace
2: wasn't a flash player like what would become popular in the eighties. But then again, can you sing along with like fucking Eddie Van Halen solos? No. Say <laughs> <laughs> I
1: just did, and and and,
2: and, 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 and a nod to uh, my friend Daniel Woodson. I'll say it again. I said it once. I'll say it again. Fuck Van Halen. Yeah,
3: say my it. man, my
2: man.
1: I know. I want to get you. I, I want to get you. Alex and Eddie on to do a, a fuck Van Halen episode and have me just try to defend everything you throw at me. Cause I, I love, cause I, I'm a I Van Halen fan. I don't, I don't
2: hate Van Halen. It's just, I, I just, I just, <laughs> I'm just tired of the, uh, their fucking hero worship. They're not that great And anyway, But my, I gotta, I gotta, after I mentioned that in the other episode or, or two ago, whatever yeah. it was that uh, a friend of mine messaged me and that's all he wrote. He was like, Tell us how you f- really feel, man. It's like, <laughs> it's
1: like what fuck
2: Van Halen? Yeah, fuck you. <laughs> so let's this here we go to Baby Driver, my least favorite. And a lot of people say that.
1: And I don't hate. We were talking. We did a whole episode on You Got to Hear This, which yep. you can hear in our archives on the network uh, about Baby Driver. And archives
2: the s- where tell the tell the people on the Something Good Network on the Something Good Network Patreon. And, and what's the what's the what's the show called?
1: You Got to Hear This. Okay. Yes.
2: Did www. Did you just Patreon say that and I miss
3: com. it? Yeah, you did. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Patreon.com like cool. slash something good network.
2: Yeah. Well, hey, you know, gotta but, put gotta put your stuff over me. <laughs>
1: but yeah, he and I uh, went back and forth on Baby Driver to where like I don't hate the song, I think it's weird, and and Alex made some good points about how there's some moments where uh, their stuff definitely got punched in or rearranged. Yeah, uh, that's another and things one. Like that the too. intro,
3: as soon as it goes to the bop bop, go Baby Driver, that bop bop sounds to me like another punch in like the buildup into that feels very off time.
2: Yeah. It doesn't feel a little weird. I, you know, it, it is. What is this song even about? Who knows? I don't really care. I, I just like, I like Peter's vocal. I do too. You know, cause he gets it. He, especially when he does his screaming stuff, you know, yeah. and I'll tell you what I really like about this. I'm giving this a lot of thought cause I'm stupid and I'm a nerd. <laughs> um, the 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 descending guitar lines on it. Ba, 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 ba. I like
1: those a lot too.
2: Those are horn lines. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. We've talked about them doing this before. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's ever been more obvious than in that moment. I can hear again, this is an R&B song. It's just muscled up and swaggered out with hard rock machismo. But really, you know, this is just this could have been just as easily um, uh, you know a driving uh, more funk more funkadelic than than earth wind and fire but mm-hmm.
1: it's still you know Not, but what's just a stripped down rock and roll version and uh i found uh a, a, a line in peter's book where he talks about this song that i thought was interesting he claims that gene and paul mess with the arrangement on baby driver and yeah. post that's it's very likely you know it's hard to say um This was co-written with uh, his uh, main songwriting partner uh, Stan Stan Penridge. Penridge, Well, co-written, yeah. 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 (laughs) Who knows? But But I I think,
3: like looking at it from a guitarist standpoint, I think what bugs me about the song is the main riff is just da 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 da. I like that. That's what I like, and And I
2: like that, and I like you know that it's kind of got almost a call and response with the guitar. It's the you know he sings the verse and it's met with the guitar. Yeah. It matches it, and uh, you know I just think this is an underrated song. Honestly, I think this is just it's it's a solid driving. You know I like that drive bump,
0: mm. it's a little hard something rocker.
2: about that. It's got you know, but you know, and I like the 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 horn sounding guitars. Mm-hmm. You know that chorus those guitars just rain in over everything at yeah. the end, and I'm like, Ow. this is just a really killer song. If you really give it a a fair shake, you realize, man, there's. There's a lot going on here and this isn't the underrated song that people want to dismiss because, you know, there's a lot of fire and fury in this.
3: Yeah. And I can totally I think looking at it from that angle I can probably appreciate it a little bit more. It just you know, actually, from what you were saying earlier, you know, this is your favorite record for so many solid bangers. Mm-hmm. I think that's why it kind of stuck out to me because everything else was so like between eight out of ten to ten out of ten that this one hitting like maybe a five out of ten was like, ooh, what happened? Well, oh,
2: see, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rate it that well. When, but when that moved, that's that's just me.
1: When that movie <laughs> but, Baby Driver came out, what was it five six years ago? That's all I sang in my head for a few days. <laughs> You flip the album over, mm-hmm.
2: slip the needle in the groove, you get a very awkward intro to the song Love Them and Leave em. But, but, but. And it just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. Mm-hmm. And it seems like they were trying to like stretch for space here.
3: Mm, there's
2: not a lot of song here. If there's any valid criticism for the endless chorus and the fade out, you also got an endless intro here. But having said all that, I love this song.
3: Oh, yeah. It's and I really 30.
2: love, this is one of my all-time favorite Gene vocals, just for that f- opening line where he goes, you see me coming your way. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, Sitting
3: <laughs> by I, the window. But just that hey,
2: hey, hey, hey. Yeah. That, right there in and of itself. And I'm just like, every time I hear that, I'm like,
3: yeah. I love that. No, I really I really do love this song. To me, this is one that probably doesn't get as much love as it should, even though it was part of, which we can talk about after the fact, it was part of those three videos they kind of shot. Yeah. yeah.
2: Which is interesting because, I mean, what was their... It seems like they had an intention for Uh this to be a single. It would be an odd choice for me to Mm -hmm. be a single. It's got... uh That weird that that solo is a little bit weird sounding. It's it's processed in some way that I haven't quite figured out what they're doing. Yeah, it's not quite a reverse. like when he's
3: doing the. the
2: But I think that's what they did. I think they reversed it. That's what uh, I've read somewhere that that's
1: what the trick was on that. Okay, because that's that's another Eddie Kramer trope that he would play a lot of shit backwards since like his Jimi Hendrix days.
2: Yeah, and so it just has that weird sound to it, Mm -hmm. you know, and. I don't know, but I I love it. I think it sounds cool. And I, I, you know, I like, I like the, you know, I just like the whole thing. I don't mind that it extends. I'm I'm like, you know, don't bore us. get to the chorus kind of idea. (laughs) The song is pretty much all course. And it's like, basically. And and it's like, gee, what's this song about? Oh, I think it's readily apparent.
1: (laughs) And again, those R&B moments where it's
3: like, da-da, da-da, da. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, And my favorite moments in the song are, um, like when he says the when you ask me which hotel I'm staying, the the way the guitars kind of ring out, the drum fill, and then the plucking of the accent notes from like Paul or something into the don't they
2: don't no this is uh, the lyrics are come from that rock and Rolls Royce yes yeah mm-hmm. which you know I could see that have been a workable song too yeah you know? it, it was
3: probably the most fleshed out of out of all those mm-hmm. it felt like.
2: Now let's go into what I would say is probably the single best Kiss song of all time. Really? Yeah, I think there's there's few moments that shine as brightly as this. They hit all the best stuff that they know how to do. It's mm-hmm. definitely
1: one of my favorites.
2: It's, it's it's got and we're we're talking about Mr. Speed, of course. Yes. Mr. Speed is if I were to go okay what's the all-time greatest kiss song I usually I usually would go to that yeah and there's i mean just that riff mhm i mean it's a, it's got that kind of a blues bend riff they've yep. never played this live and from what i understand from friends it's not that easy to play They're not easy to play and sing necessarily.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like the "Can't You Hear Me Knocking" riff from the Rolling Stones.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. You know, I never thought of that, but you know, but it bends a lot more. Yeah, exactly. You know, but it doesn't sound slinky, and it doesn't sound you know
3: too loose, too
2: loose. It's it's still got. Power behind it, great Paul vocal. Great Paul vocal. especially. I, I love his uh, yeah, he's got the sass vocal going, mm-hmm. and it and it, and he's he's got a little bit of a bite to his voice. He's yep. not singing, singing. Wow. To me, that's what Paul Duds did best. That's that's one of the great differences between seventies Paul and Paul thereafter when he started trying to be like i don't fucking know
1: overseeing yeah
2: when he tried to be some great singer but what made him a great singer was you know again that sass that yeah. grit you know it's soulful it's attitude it's attitude and you know then on top of it you get to the to those little breaks where they do beetle harmonies Yes. And what if there's one thing that kiss does really fucking well is ape the beatles yes yep. And, you know, Gene more so than Paul, Mm -hmm. which we'll discuss in future episodes, I'm going to we'll get into that at length at another point. But, you know, that Beatle Harmony has always been their secret weapon. Yeah. Their ability to do that. So few groups had that. Mm-hmm. Nobody mm-hmm. wants to. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah.
2: And and the way they put it in there, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't see why this wasn't a single. I don't understand why this isn't like more widely known. Just, yeah, you
1: could totally hear this on like just regular classic rock radio after it's, fucking Leonard Skinner or some shit. It's just a
3: good like take the name Kiss out of it. It's just a solid seventies rock this and is, roll well, song.
2: Never take the seventies out of it. Well, it feels very of the time I, though. I think it's just a great rock and roll song, and it just it spills over itself and is one of the most underrated and underappreciated songs in their catalog. Not when not, not maybe not so much. I can remember many, many years ago on probably it might've been the kiss asylum website. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. There was a poll of everyone's favorite kiss song. And Mr. Speed won. Oh, wow. And I was like, you know, I am not alone. (laughs) I'm validated. You know, and I I still think that, you know, with like hardcore Kiss nerds that Mr. Speed is the stone jam. I mean, I, I, I just I love
1: this song. I like the lead in it. Yeah. You know. Not that many notes in the the solo or anything like that either. It's Just like a lot of bends, just like Dr. Love. and then it's got that little shuffle
2: in it, that da 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 you know? And then and then it and then it all just kinda stops and then he falls right back into the riff again. And I'm like, that arrangement is fucking clever.
3: And then they change up the riff once they get back into it. It, we we totally like use that as uh-huh. a blueprint for a song we were doing because we just I love that kind of arrangement where it's like it kind of comes out and then you modify the riff a little bit and then you bust it right back on in
2: it, and and you know what's interesting is they do this again in the song after which leads yep. us into see you in your dreams another favorite of mine from when I, from too. when I was very
1: young it's become like a new favorite of mine here in the last few months
2: it's it's a really well written little song I think a lot of people have uh, overlooked it. Um Of course, you know, we'll revisit this again on Gene Sola because he kind of extends it and rearranges yeah. it a bit. But this yeah, version... That, he
3: claims that Paul rearranged it and he wasn't happy with that version. And that's why he went and redid it well, on his that, record. That
2: may be true. He might not have been happy. I don't understand why, though, because this turns out really strong. Oh, um yeah. You know, it's it's very... It's got a that again it's got a very strong pop underhook mm-hmm, mm-hmm, especially know? on that chorus this yeah. this isn't you know but then you go to that and that's a that's almost a an R&B kind of vocal a, almost of a Temptations kind of a thing now it's 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 angular it isn't like the Temptations at all but you know I can hear it flip a little bit and it has sort of a motown kind of a you know a vibe but then you go into that um uh, on the outro part while they're doing that The the riff has that, Mm -hmm. you know, they bring that in. And it's only on the on the outro part that that shows up. Now, let me ask you a question, though, about this. And I might have asked you before this too, Alex a long time ago, because I think I'm the only one that hears this. Okay, but I hear it because my brother heard it, apparently. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's one of those little sonic anomalies that's just creating an an aural illusion. Right. Which it very likely is. Or if it's actually there, okay. But on the chorus, I'm hearing a recorder or a flute.
3: I'll have to go back and listen. Yeah, to I got to do
2: that too. And my brother pointed that out when I was very little because I loved this song, and he thought it was sissy because it had the flute. And and I've I've brought this up. I'm like, y'all don't hear that? It's very it's very subtle. You barely hear it, but it's just going. And under the you <laughs> okay? Okay, I'll have to go and back like, and listen. And now I'm going, I think that that isn't
3: actually there, but if you can hear it, I was gonna say you can't unhear it. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And, and the thing I also like about this song, but is my like, brother
2: used to chase me around pretending to play a flute, you know, and I'd go, Stop, <laughs> you know, we were, like, we were, the like the stupid
1: band the, kiss and
2: yeah. the stupid flutes. I was like six years old, you know, and he would just come up and just tease me with
3: it. And yeah,
0: like, it's kind of that not
3: doing that, <laughs> you get a little older, and they might be Ooh, doing that, they might be there. But Here. I like the uh, when they come out of the solo and the drums go into the little bit of a breakdown and the call and response between Gene and Paul, see you see Oh, yeah, you. yeah, because he adds that extra dreams tonight. That's yeah. when they start adding that part into yeah. the lyric and that's too that's where
2: it, and that leads into the bad. Nah, nah, nah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's just a clever and a clever arrangement on a very otherwise simple song, absolutely. But it's a great song, it's a fun song, I love it. Um, Now, Hard Luck Woman. I love this song. There's the narrative on this, the official KISS narrative on this, that Paul wrote this for
1: for Rod Rod Stewart. Stewart. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
2: And I'm going to call bullshit on that. Okay. Because Paul is a great stylist. (laughs) There it is. Yep. I think he wrote that in you know to be in the style with, mm-hmm. with the intention he wrote to pitch it to for, uh for them and i i almost would be uh, you know because he's on so, he's so heavily on the on the fuck peter bus mm-hmm. that i don't think they want to acknowledge that that song was probably even written with Peter's voice in mind, oh, yeah. knowing that he had that same sandpaper kind of quality. Mm-hmm. This song could not have been sung by anyone other than Peter. If you wanted to get that effect, if you're trying to achieve that Rod Stewart faces thing, mm-hmm. which is obviously what they were going for. I was
3: hearing Maggie May throughout it too. Yeah. Well,
2: yeah. that's, you know, so I can't see that ever not being the, the end objective on this. Right. Um, so, after that, you could say, well, if Paul sang it, would it have even been the same song?
3: Not really, because we actually got a clip of that in the uh, MTV Unplugged. Uh, in recent years, when they've released like the Kissologies and like bootlegs going yeah. around, we, we all know that they were, were played for like three damn hours for that MTV Unplugged, and they saved like 40 minutes of it. And they did that during a changeover. Okay. Paul sang Hard Luck Woman, and it didn't quite hit. Like, Paul has a great voice. I still say unplugged is one of the best Paul's best eighties to nineties vocal performances. But, but again, but if, it just didn't hit.
2: If it, but it doesn't hit because because it doesn't hit, or it doesn't hit because we are so used to having the, the version that voice. we know that that raspy Paul Peter. You know, I think that's just
3: what the song calls for.
2: I like the song a lot, but it is. It feels like to me a very convoluted. Conscious, mm-hmm. we're trying to sound like the faces mm-hmm. or Rod Stewart, solo, or whatever. Yeah, and uh, and to me, so that kind of almost wrecks the song for me. Really, mm. and, it's one of my favorites, and I like the song. I think it's really well done. I yeah. mean, again, Paul has that ability to write in a style and and emulate it. I just think it would have been it would have been more fully realized had he sang it himself and not gone. And this may not have been Paul's decision. This could have been Eddie Kramer's decision.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: He might have heard it and gone, you know, this would sound a lot like, you know, Rod Stewart if you had Peter sing it. Jeez. And then that might be a potential hit.
0: Mm-hmm. And, of to, course,
2: when you say that, you know, I'm sure all the stars are like, oh yeah, oh,
0: yeah. So I who knows? I
2: don't know. There might, you know, that that may well be the case. But I know was another uh, song that was
1: used for the videos. I know we. Yeah. Oh, uh, it was definitely released as a single, and it did well. Mm-hmm. I know we can only take the uh, the memoirs with a grain of salt, but uh, according to Peter's book, he says that. Uh, he heard Paul do the song, and he says, "Oh fuck that! I'll, I should sing this song, you know, in so oh, many yeah. words."
2: Well, the, you know that may be true too, and it may be after the fact that once he started doing it, they heard the the you know that it sounded like the Faces or whatever.
3: Yeah, but I also don't believe I that don't they basically had they to sit here made... and like sing it for him and then them do it back because they claim that one like they do Beth that they uh, had to like do a track for him to sing over. Oh, I don't
2: know. I don't know. I just. um you know, it just feels like a convoluted kind of mm-hmm. obviousness to it that the other songs don't necessarily have. I mean again we talk about the underpinning of like R & b influence that isn't so readily noticeable because they are so you know rocked out the Beatle harmonies all these mm-hmm. obvious influences that just sort of kind of get worked in you know as opposed to just copying they're working it yeah this feels like they're just copying.
3: Yeah, I can like, definitely
2: see like that. Like you
1: were saying, it was a stylist kind of uh, yeah. arrangement. I, I, it's a, it's an it's interesting take. It's not that I
2: don't like the song. Mm-hmm. It's not that I don't like anything about it. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm just saying it's, it's, it's kind of the weakest track. And that's of no one's fault other than the songwriters, probably. Right. If, if that was what they were trying to achieve, mm-hmm. I think Peters does a great vocal. I mean, I, I like Peters' vocals. I mean, everyone does. I oh think. yeah. Yeah. So. Especially live, he's just a beast. Yeah. So I, you know, it's, but I just think the, for the fact that it feels like they're so obviously grabbing towards a particular thing, that's mm-hmm. what that's the that's the handicap
3: on it. Um, making love. The Interesting closer, yeah. Interesting note on this one: the only song played in standard E. I
1: think uh, Mr. Speed was too. Was it?
3: Was it? I thought I think that so. was a half stub. Uh, see, y'all are the musicians. <laughs> <of> this, <so laughs> I pre- I I'm pretty know.
1: sure Mr. Speed was too. Okay. Uh, Making love definitely is too. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. Making love, I think, is a killer riff. It's uh, this is a killer song all the way through. I like the way they uh, bounce the the chorus vocal. Yeah. Bloop everything well
3: i'm just the making, love, making love, oh yeah yeah it's like long. it's you know falling all over the, oh it also does a reverse thing because it goes oh, oh. Yeah, yeah, that, the, there's,
2: there's a lot of that mm-hmm. ace's lead on it is great oh yeah you know do you think those like, like
1: those drum hits at the end are like stacked you know takes on top of each other because they sound bigger as they get towards the end yeah mm-hmm.
2: yeah he's probably double tracked them that, that, yeah, kind of like that. All I mean, these little things, you know, and it just, yeah. you know, the song's just got that kind
3: of it is very repetitive. It basically stays on the entire time. Why
2: would it not? Because it's such a gnarly little riff, you know, and it's just such a great song. And uh,
1: when they play it live, it's always fun to watch because Paul's got that uh, flying V with a capo on the first fret and it looks kind of awkward, yeah, but you
2: know. What are you gonna do? And the live
3: version, uh, always doing the uh,
1: (laughs) make it
0: loud. How was that again? Do
3: it again. Yeah,
2: that was pretty good. Reverse it. Reverse it. (laughs) Reverse it.
1: (laughs) Eddie Kramer, the shit. Yeah.
2: (laughs) So uh, that kind of winds up all the tracks on the album. They Mm -hmm. recorded this again in the fall of '76, and just as this record is coming out, Beth is peeking out I think it reached as high as number seven mm-hmm. and now you know they've got
3: two albums almost they're almost competing with themselves at this point mm-hmm. um, I wonder if that's part of the reason it does kind of get forgotten that by the time people really start picking up Destroyer and Rock and Roll Over was out people weren't really looking at it because they were picking yeah, well, up Destroyer because they had Detroit Rock City and Beth
2: yeah I don't know you know I, I, I like They get this album out. I like the cover art.
3: Yes. Uh, Quick side note. I was going to, there's an, awesome podcast. Um, I'll wind up putting it in the episode description uh, where the artist discusses going through the making of the artwork and how they even had to do specific cell shading in order to get it right Good. and how he would show up to printing plants and be like, show me your tests. And one time he had to stop him and be like, this is not correct. Right. You did they not had separate already printed like a bunch
2: of it, right? Uh-huh. And they had
3: to just trash it on. Yeah, I, I remember hearing that. And like There's I said, snow- I'll put that episode in the description here. I yeah. highly recommend people check it out. I was enamored with hearing about how like just specific blues they picked and why they had to let like, go and chest the printing press to make sure it was going to come out that vibrant and well, stuff like that. There's
2: no hard copy for this art. There's mm-hmm. no. There's no real art for this it was
3: all done through a printer separation and i don't understand the logistics of that Mm -hmm. i do a little bit and that's why i say i don't even want to accidentally mess it up just take a look in the uh, episode description here guys and if you if you're interested in art and the process of how to get that kind of stuff done highly recommend it. but
2: i'll tell you it's interesting to note there is a particular pressing of it exclusive to the rca music club back in the day You would get uh, an ad in your local paper on Sunday, buy, you know, uh, eight albums or cassettes, or uh, back in the day it was eight tracks. Yeah. Albums are eight tracks for a penny, and you only have to buy one more at full price, you know. And the RCA Record Club had the
3: variation where it looks like Paul Stanley has teardrops coming out of his Mm -hmm. eye. Yep. Yep. And he's got like two blue teardrops coming out of his left or right. And people were kind of, I think so. I may be flipped on that. Either way, uh, but they discussed that later on, and apparently that was just part of a pressing error. It like was the just blue, a, yeah,
2: it was just an error in the when they printed it. I looked for this for years. Yeah, I looked for this for years.
1: So <laughs> I, I always ask people about this anytime they have a cover of it. I was like, which I, one do you have? And I, I have, looked
2: for it. You know what? I saw one a week ago at a at a big record convention thing. And uh, you know, and I was like tempted to buy it, but anyway, I had it. I, I was on the prowl for it for years, and uh, about three years ago, I'm having to move all my records, and I've got like six copies of Rock and Roll Ever. Because anytime I find it, like with the sticker or anything, yeah, because yeah, the sticker especially. And, and, and we should also know it, it came with a sticker, mm-hmm. and it came with an order form,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and. What else? There's something else that it come with.
3: I think that was it. Cause it didn't have like lyrics or no, a fold out or anything. The
2: sticker was die cut. You could pull off the individual members as its own sticker or the
3: logos. It was wow. kind of puzzled cut. Yeah. So to find those are hard. Oh, the inner sleeve had the four kiss logos. Yeah.
2: It had the inner sleeve. Mm-hmm. And then of course this RCA Misprint with the teardrop cover.
3: Yeah. I'm, I'm very happy to have a copy of that one.
2: I moved these records around. You know, I've moved a bunch, just particularly in the last uh, 15 years. I've moved mm-hmm. a bunch and I've had to move my records every time. It's always a big, giant pain in the ass. Oh, yeah. And I'm going through my records and I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> i've got one
0: uh, how did this even, get here how did this get here i never noticed it A
2: little gift to yourself and yeah i was looking for it and then i had it all this time i That's think awesome. there i think the guy was asking like 50 bucks for it, when I wow. saw it the thing, the other. i'm like why would why the you know, people people
1: don't make any sense to me? <laughs> would this be the uh, most parodied kiss album cover maybe this or destroyer
3: yeah, yeah, I would agree. I and Dynasty too, because it, of how simple it is. This
2: cover is very iconic. I think they uh you know, they got a lot of mileage off of this because it was so readily uh you know, it seems like it was ready made for a t shirt or Oh yeah. I think the t shirts
3: that look the best are the yellow shirts with the graphic on it. Yeah. I think that looks so good.
2: It's it's a it's a great image. I think it's probably their best cover. I really do. It's it's it, you know it's such an unusual and eye grabbing cover, and and it it's just it works to their image so very well.
1: They tried to reuse the same aesthetic for what was it, Sonic Boom or yeah. Monster? One of the Walmart CDs they put out. Sonic Boom. I Sonic think, Boom. I
2: think we also, I think we might have forgotten to mention uh, over the course of the summer during the Destroyer tour, uh, Casablanca repackaged the first three records in a. In a three in a single set called mm-hmm. the Originals, yeah, and, and that was a, um, it, it, you know, that had a kind of a reproduction of the original album, the first album photo, but it's, uh, you know, fired up. It's put in the uh, image of a nuclear bomb exploding, huh. <laughs> and then you open the record up, and the and the records are in paper sleeves that reproduce the covers of oh, each man. one it's it's kiss hotter and hell and dressed to kill and also came with a, a little booklet that had a history of kiss up to that point you know that whopping two-year history that they
3: had <laughs> but uh, it's crazy that but, they could fill up a book just in over two years yeah
2: and there was a lot of cool little information it also came with the um, it came with a a sheet of punch out trading cards you could punch it out off the sheet yeah they're perforated And then a large uh, Kiss Army sticker. Yep, 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 yep. And finding this is very hard to find a loaded copy of the originals. Those are not, you can, I find the originals fairly frequently, but they're almost in varying states of disorder. They're missing records. Yeah, almost always missing the inserts. I don't think I've ever seen one that had the cards in it. No, I,
3: I don't have the cards. I've, I've got one. Uh, it's got the booklet, but it's basically falling apart, and it's missing one of the records. I think it's it's either missing Higher Than Hell or the first record. Well,
2: I haven't seen one with the cards in it, except
1: for the one that I own.
2: Oh.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm sure John 5 has one, too. Uh,
2: yeah, you know what? Uh, that guy, you know. I watched his fucking collection
1: video the other day. It's it, nuts. It's
2: sick. That guy. Yeah. You know what? That guy has got everyone beat
3: oh yeah oh, miles yeah. you know
2: we have and, to and he's a to prime example
3: and he's a prime example of i couldn't give a hit good damn about his band or the uh-uh. sound he makes but i love the fact he's such a kiss nerd oh, yeah. i love it
2: yeah uh quirky stasiak makes this great comment about uh rock and roll over after the fact and and or great, depending. Interesting, I should say. Mm. This comment, in and of itself, we could probably do a whole episode on. He said, "You know, Rock and Roll Over was a great record, but it was not Destroyer."
3: Yeah, I wonder I what mean... he exactly meant by that. Destroyer,
2: they really went over and above what mm-hmm. they could do. They they learned a lot with it. They were they were making, uh, really. You know, I mean, I hate to use the word. Because it's pretentious, you know. But they really made kind of a piece of art with Destroyer. I mean, yeah, it went yeah, to another level, and that's again the Bob Ezrin. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, it would be interesting to say at this point, had they continued with Bob Ezrin, what trajectory their career would have taken. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because uh, you know, it wasn't like I mean, for all of the Bob Ezrinisms, the over-the-top, you know, everything in the kitchen sink the records he made were still very accessible. They're not, they weren't you know, like art
1: rock they, records or something. Right. It wasn't know. Yes or Pink Floyd. Although right. He did work with Pink Floyd on the wall later and on. And it wasn't yeah. even as
3: weird as some of the Cooper stuff.
2: No. But even the Cooper stuff was very accessible. You know, I can see that. And so it would Cold have been Ethel. interesting to see if they would have uh, you know, I wonder if they would have uh, garnered any sort of kind of critical accolades at, after the after a point. Mm-hmm. I, w- I would say probably not. I think most people were still judging them by listening with their eyes instead of their ears. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think they were missing the, uh,
1: well, this album also had a bunch of fuck me, suck me songs. Like, uh, Bob wanted to get rid of on <laughs> yeah. destroyer well, they, too. They were
2: like, Oh yeah, well that's kind of what we do. Yeah. They hired <laughs> we're a fuck me, suck me band. <laughs> they hired Danny Goldberg as their publicist who had previously worked for Led Zeppelin. When Led Zeppelin had a very, uh, difficult time with the press had a adversarial reputation with mm. the press and Goldberg was became their kind of magic bridge to that and it, so it made sense that Kiss would do the same thing I think actually Danny Goldberg ran Swan Song Records for a second
1: interesting
2: but um, it's interesting they, they brought him along he uh, I guess in conjunction with their uh, um Well, we'll get to this. So they, 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 very important thing about the whole rock and roll over. I keep hitting my mic. (laughs) The whole rock and roll over, you know, era Mm -hmm. is going to happen the following spring, but they're going on tour again. This is basically an extension of the destroyer tour. Yeah. It begins in Savannah, Georgia. They're using the same stage, the same costumes, um, some interesting things happen along the way, mm-hmm. the most notable being on December 12th in Lakeland, Florida. Ace Frehley grabs an ungrounded handrail
3: Yep, and, and electrocutes, electrocutes himself. himself. Mm-hmm. It was like heart stopped for like a couple minutes and then picked him back I, in. I don't know that it's heart
2: stopped, but he was jolted pretty good. They yeah. took him off and he kind of took him a few minutes to kind of recombobulate.
3: He finished the show. Yeah, he said he didn't have any feeling in his fingers, but yeah, he finished the show. He
2: finished the show. Well, you know, it's it's that shows a lot of uh, heart. But you know, he obviously couldn't have been hurt that bad if he felt, if anyone felt he was in shape to finish the show.
3: Yeah, and also it's Ace. By this point, he was abusing his body pretty well. That may have just been, who knows? Maybe that electric shock kept him from dying so long.
2: Right. <laughs> well, they they had this magical.
3: Uh, this magical
2: um, miracle drug that really served to help um, people in moments of crisis that helped them overcome things. It was called cocaine. <laughs>
1: I thought you were about to say cortisone, but <laughs> uh, no. no. that would be Peter later on.
2: Uh, on February 10th, the AMA Music Awards mm-hmm. air, and they win... For best single for Beth. Yeah. Lydia, his wife, accepts the award. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then they show like a live clip or something of them
3: thanking everyone and they're acting surprised.
2: Oh,
1: we won. Oh, wow. Well, they
2: recorded it several weeks prior. They knew that they had already won. Yeah. But um, I'm not exactly sure how all that works, but I think it's kind of ironic that Lydia accepts it. And the song's somewhat kind of a critical of a a female in the music female went. and she's mm-hmm. like this is how everyone feels when their man's away. I'm like okay. <laughs> but, you know, that hey, Kudos to Lydia Chris. That gave her 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 moment. Oh, totally. And then on February 18th, another very important milestone in history.
3: They play their first Madison Square Garden headlining. Yeah, that league. meant a lot to Paul.
2: Well, it meant a lot to all of them. Yeah.
3: Well, he's just been the most vocal about it. That's why you know.
2: Cool that. Uh, well, Peter was pretty vocal about it. Yeah. I mean, it was a big deal. Um, uh, there's a video that exists of it, professionally shot. Mm-hmm. Um. It's it's pretty rough and ragged, but yeah. but it's exciting and it's a it's I, rock and I, roll. It's great. Yeah. And you know that's a uh, that's interesting because it's 1977 mm-hmm. at this point early winter of 77 so three years prior you know we're talking about a band that couldn't give away tickets probably i yeah. mean they were just i mean they're fresh out of the shoot, and it's in only York taking York them yeah. and in three years they've gone from playing a place like the hotel diplomat or the daisy or the coventry and now they're literally playing Madison Square Garden. Yeah. So that,
1: their rise has been pretty meteoric. That had to have been like the peak moment for all four of the members at that point after all the shit they went through, after all the records, and after all it took to get where they are, like to headline Madison Square Garden for how many nights at this point?
2: Well, this was only one. Just the one, okay. And and it, it was a hard sell for the... Um, to, they they It seemed like they, they had to kind of lean on the uh, area promoter which mm-hmm. would have been Ron Desler. There's a famous picture of them presenting him with an award. There's footage of it too. There's movie footage of it. Um, but he conti- he was continuously surprised by their you know, they were always one-upping themselves right. and, with stuff like that. Um, so I don't have the last date of the tour. I actually had that pull up. I'm going to get that back up here. But um, I'm pretty sure it was in Massachusetts.
1: They talk about how when they uh, after that first the Madison Square Garden headlining show, everything else was just kind of like
3: downhill for the rest of the tour. Like they immediately no, played.
2: Well, there's uh, a, no, 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 no. Right, so real go. quick
3: before we go into that one, your first comment. Um, the last U.S. date was in Hampton on March 7th. Hampton, Virginia? Uh, it's not saying and yes it is yes and then on March 24th and 25th is when they run out to Osaka
2: Yeah, I was going to say now this is the, this is one of the big things that's important off this rock and roll over era mm-hmm. is their first tour to Japan and they um, they worked out this really great deal with Pan American Airlines to charter a plane mm-hmm. and and The plane, and they use this as basically a probably the biggest press junket of all time. They invite certain members of the press to fly with the band in this private jet to Japan for their first ever Japanese tour. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in the process, um, Al Ross, who works for AMI, which is their booking agency, has made this deal with Pan American to paint the plane with the kiss logo on it that logo stayed on that plane for years after
3: oh he wow. said for
2: years after he'd get pictures of that plane at different parts of the world oh that's you so know, cool people would take pictures of it so it, it it kind of uh it kind of worked to their benefit yeah um what is also interesting about this tour not only do they they fly over a great deal of people because mm-hmm. this is going to end up working really well for them and this will inform a lot of what they kick off love gun with mm-hmm. but um, this is also the first time they ever use what is now commonly known as the love gun stage yes because they've been using the quote-unquote destroyer stage all the way through this touring cycle for rock and roll over
3: and I heard it was something like they couldn't get the rock and roll I mean the destroyer stuff over
2: I don't think that's it. I think they just they've they've designed and constructed this new stage
0: mm-hmm.
2: and the they couldn't get it to they couldn't figure out it was too heavy. They had right. to figure out, OK, they've got it loaded. It's going to fly over, shit on it, <laughs> but it's just too heavy. And they're like trying to figure out how are we going to get around this? Mm-hmm. You know, because everything's locked. We're ready to go. And apparently one of the guys that are flying the plane stops and goes, you know what? I know how we can make this work. We can fly the plane depressurized. Mm-hmm. And they basically had to wear astronaut suits.
1: Oh, wow. Or
2: the same kind of suits that uh, jet flyers fly when they go up into the upper atmosphere. Yeah. So they had to wear, like I guess, like gravity suits yeah. or whatever. And fly. And now that's one thing to do that for an hour or two in yeah. a plane, or whatever,
1: <laughs> going to but, Japan. <laughs> but you're
2: flying essentially, you know, 14 hours from, I assume, New York to Japan. Yeah, and that's that's that that's took a, a high level of commitment on the people that are that are doing this. Oh, totally. So they get I hope this, they got a raise, <laughs> and it worked. Um, they get to Japan. Um, and of course, the reception they get there is like mania We've all seen the oh, footage yeah. of the Beatles landing for the first time in '64. And it's like deafening audio. And it's audio. just like the the crowds are all lined up in the in the in the airport, and you know, it's just like they're met with thousands of screaming teenagers. Well, Kiss meets the same thing here in Japan, mm-hmm. and they have worked out in advance that they're going to the plane in full regalia. They're going to come out as Kiss costumes and all right and they've got this worked out with customs everything's good to go they get suited up you know as they're getting approaching they come off the plane the place erupts kisses arrived but there's been a shift change (laughs) (laughs) and the guys that made the arrangement for them to 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 kind of just come on through customs were like uh no (laughs) No,
3: yeah,
0: <laughs>
2: you're gonna have to take all this stuff off. How do we know that you are the people yeah. that are on this passport photo? Yeah, so they had to go to a room, take their makeup off, <laughs> which is already and, like they- and show that they are who they are, yeah, and then redo everything so yeah. they can come
1: back out again. So I would be it was cussing the entire time. <laughs> and it's like, and at that time, it took them like, what, an hour to put on their makeup and do it right and all that shit, too? Oh, yeah. I mean, it still takes them a
2: while. I, I'm sure they probably did it
1: a within lot about 15 that minutes. <laughs> yeah. But,
2: yeah. And so that's how Kiss got, you know, that was their first uh, Hello Japan. <laughs> but that shows the level of commitment that this band had to take. Yes. And this is something they had to do. We, we, we laugh about this, but really, that's what they had to do to prepare for every single show every single day, Mm -hmm. every single press junket, every single interview, every single everything. You know, anytime there was a camera involved, they had to be in character. They had to be in costume, you know, and at the same time, they're still fighting on the regular, probably more so now as they're attracting greater interest to hide their faces because Mm -hmm. they don't want anyone to see, you know, they're preserving that people forgotten. No one knew what they looked like. And they didn't want anyone to know what they look like. They the were mystique. creating that mystique. So they go and they play uh, how many? I don't know rem- how many dates. It wasn't many. It was like they was were like only a week there for two. like a week yeah. or two. They, and 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 it capped off with multiple shows, three nights at uh, the Budokan in Japan.
1: Japan in that time period in the late seventies really embraced you know the new rock that was coming out. Oh too. yeah, they
2: a, were they were yeah. loving it. They and were they did, loving it.
3: And they did three days at Budokan, April first, second, and fourth.
2: And one of those dates they had to tear their stage down mm-hmm. so they could do like a some other event at the arena that, that was day, probably the third and then set it all back up again
3: yeah God
2: they played two night they they played a two shows in one day there so they they was it three days you said yes so April they 1st, did second they did four shows uh the shows were professionally videotaped for broadcast in japan and later i guess they were used for uh hbo it was an hbo concert special hbo was a new thing then so most Mm -hmm. people probably never even got to see it because Mm -hmm. cable was had yet to really ascend like it had right so that had to been really special for any kid that had hbo in 1977 or eight whenever it finally aired um
3: and wasn't the uh at least another one of the lore stories is Gene, Paul, Bill, someone in the KISS camp read over the contract and like penciled in saying after so many broadcasts the rights go back to a coin management.
2: Oh, I don't know. I mean that's a good story, but that's probably mm-hmm. a procophole. I'm sure they were all that stuff was probably very carefully covered in and, and but you never know. I mean yeah. um they recorded those shows, too. Mm-hmm. So, Eddie Kramer was on hand to record all these shows. Those recordings exist. In fact, some of it survived to be on a live, too. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it was intended to be a second live album. It was intended to be a live album for Japan, as yeah. the way I understand it. Uh, much like Cheap Tricks at Budokan Record was essentially Just intended in only for, j- for the Japanese market. right? Um, so, you know, there's that's somewhat of a question mark. It's like, okay, that was all recorded. Um,
3: you can find really good boots of it out there called the lost alive. Yeah.
2: But my question is then as much as alive had been doctored, how much doctoring was done to this? And there's never been any information about that. I mean, obviously they had to have gone in and done something, I think to clean it up. I mean, if they've taken the time to professionally record it Mm -hmm. somewhere, there had to have been some additional work because they did that, we'll discuss this in future episodes when they go to australia yeah um but, you know, that's a way to really cap off a, a, a giant amount of stuff for for an era that, again, seems to largely have been overlooked. Absolutely.
3: no. And, that's, that's one thing I noticed. Like, anytime I've been looking up these previous albums, it's like I can find treasure troves of information and notes and different interviews from people.
2: Coming up very empty for a rock and roll over. Yeah, that's, um. but they got a lot of press off of it at mm-hmm. the time.
1: Um, not really any hits off of it though, except maybe Hard Luck Woman. Yeah,
2: Hard Luck Woman did pretty well. Uh, you know, probably again the idea was to create confusion on the on the part of the listener. Is that is that a new is that a new Rod Stewart song? Oh no, it's Kiss. Well, I, I
1: kinda <laughs> like that, you know. He brought up uh, Doctor Love. I know that's become like a radio staple and used in commercials and things like that too. Was that like a hit when it came I out too? I don't think so.
3: I don't think it was it uh, felt like it was constantly part of the set after that because yeah, they it, played it in dynasty. It, it became a staple of their live set. Yeah, and that's kind of what I count as a hit. They kind of keep it in the live interesting set. Interesting,
2: because Hard Luck Woman never did. Nope. Apparently, they played two? that like they they, they 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 it is believed they played that on the first couple of shows of the of the Rock and Roll Over tour. Mm-hmm. By the time it gets recorded for a live two that was done completely mm-hmm. in the not studio. live. Yeah, uh, there's like a sound check yeah, or in the some, studio or, yeah, something. or something like that. So really, that song was never really. Played live, yeah, to the best of anyone's knowledge. I think uh, same
3: thing with tomorrow and tonight,
2: yeah. Mm-hmm. But you know, we'll get all to that oh, on yeah. the on the next episode of No Time to Turn, and That's uh, right. hopefully you guys will uh, come along with us, and uh, we'll, we'll hopefully see all of you again next time on No Time to Turn. With so for Cap Nunn and Alex Stiff,
0: I'm Russ Ward, and we'll see you again soon. Thank you for listening. Please insert another coin by supporting the show for as little as a dollar a month. At patreon.com slash somethinggoodnetwork.